0: I served uh, on, at a church, on a multi-pastor church, and uh, a senior pastor who was really a man of integrity, and uh, everyone who served with him, under him, had great respect for him. It was clear at some point in the life of the church that the church was slowly declining, bleeding members to other new, hot, cool churches around. And he came to this point of crisis, I think, in his leadership to figure out, what am I supposed to do? like. I don't seem to be getting through to my staff. I don't seem to be getting through to my church. We're losing people slowly but surely. That's the first time I almost totally fell off this stage. Um, Let's not get that close to the edge. Um, And so he did something very brave, and I respect him still to this day. And I told the story just the other day to another pastor. He decided to put put himself through this. It was a secular one, a secular leadership cohort. And part of the essence, or part of the big challenge in doing this, and it was designed for CEOs of big companies, was essentially you send out these evaluation forms, these 360s, to anyone you think who might have something to say about you as a leader. So I got one as a pastor serving under him, and it's anonymous, so you could say whatever you want about your leader. And we all know how we moan and complain about the people who... We serve under, right? And, uh, and so, you know, I, I mean, I was trying to be gracious, but honest, right? Because that's the point of sending in this evaluation. That's the point of him joining this leadership cohort is to get actual feedback about his leadership. And so I don't know how, maybe he got 10, 20 of these forms sent out to people. And I remember when he came back in his first sermon after he came back from this leadership cohort and he preached a sermon and it was excruciating, because I think he got the feedback over and over again, so I'm not going to name him. So and so is not very authentic. Needs to be more authentic. Words along those lines. And he and he wasn't the kind of guy, who, pastor, who would just speak very openly about his personal struggles. Um, and so, it was painful because he was not being himself. He was actually not being authentic by trying to be authentic, and it was like stop the train wreck. Like, please stop trying to share personally because it's just really, really painful right now watching you do this. But I still had such any, luckily, I think probably went home that day and his wife was like, don't ever do that again. Like that was terrible. Um, but I still have such great respect for him because let's face it, if we actually have to go through evaluations at our workplace, we hate it. We don't want to be given constructive feedback of any kind. We don't, really want honest evaluation. Sometimes we'll give lip service, yes, yes, please. Well, I want to grow as a person. I want to become a better employee or a better leader or whatever it is. We're like, yes, please tell me. But deep down, we would rather just everyone pat us on the back and tell us we're doing a great job and move on. I share this story because these two chapters are a bit of a rude awakening from God to these seven churches God is saying to these churches, are you willing to receive an honest evaluation, the good and the bad? Will you receive this constructive feedback? And we hear this refrain again and again, he who has ears, let him hear, let the spirit speak. And so I hope, again, as we listen today, that, that the Spirit would speak to you and would challenge you. And, I, I, and here's the main point for today, and it's a bit tongue-in-cheek because it's the, like the worst main point ever, uh, but here it is. God has promised to identify with us forever, so let us be faithful to him through our witness of him, parenthesis, and witness is impacted by holiness. I'm going to say that one more time. God has promised to identify with us forever, so let us be faithful to him through our witness of him, and witness is impacted by holiness, parenthesis. Some of us are very driven to succeed. Some of us are very driven to belong, and some of us just want to do what we want to do. And if you're in any one of those categories or all of those categories, it's easy to compromise our witness to the Lord. Sometimes our desire to succeed or to belong or to do what we want to do gets in the way of us being faithful to God and what he calls us to do and the witness he calls us to. And this message to the seven churches, again, we talked about last week, seven is this, this number of completion of perfection. And as we understand the message to the seven churches, it wasn't that there were only seven churches in that time. There was seven particular churches that uh, John spoke to through this letter, and yet this letter went further than the seven churches. It was a circular letter that went to other churches, and we as modern-day readers are asked to also hear the word that is spoken through it, because those seven churches were representative of all churches in that time and to come. And we are to hear through the power of the Holy Spirit the message that God has for us. And so though it is a message specifically to seven churches, and we're to try to discern what is that message to those seven churches, we are also to ask, how then, Lord, shall we apply it to our lives? What do we share in with those churches in our struggles and our successes? One of the main things to understand in the context of what these churches were struggling with that, that John speaks to, or God speaks to through John again and again, is that what was at stake for many Christians at the time was that in order to fully engage in the economy of the time, in the society of the time, woven into their work, their employment, the society around them was the worship of pagan gods and the worship of the emperor, the Roman emperor as God. It was just a part of it. It's like you could go to work and there could be some kind of thing and you'd have to like swear allegiance to Roman Emperor or to a pagan god of, of that area. And so it was very difficult for Christians. You know, they'd have to really weigh okay, is this okay for me to be a part of this? Is it okay for me to engage in this? Often pagans would actually call Christians of the time atheists, which is kind of funny in our context today. And they would call them atheists because they wouldn't worship the many pagan gods that were worshiped at the time. And they would even call them haters of humankind because they withdrew from these kinds of societal, cultural kinds of engagements. They like because you know the 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 the, pers- the people of the time believed it was good to be a part of worshiping these pagan gods. It was good to be a part of worshiping the Roman emperor, and then for the Christians to withdraw from it was seen as not wanting to help the good of society. And so, in reaction to this pressure, some professing Christians then begin to argue that participating in these feasts that were sacrifices to idols or sexual morality that came with it, that, that it was acceptable, that our freedom in Christ allowed us to do that. On top of that, not only would Christians of the time receive pressure from sort of the pagan side of things, but they would receive pressure from, from, from Jewish people as well, who from the the Jewish point of view, would view Christianity as distorting the Jewish religion and offering a very easy way to salvation compared to what they were practicing as Jewish people. And of course, they same thing of why Jesus was crucified to begin with, they would view the worship of this crucified criminal as the divine Messiah, as just being flat-out blasphemy. And so again, as with what happened with Christ as his death, often what happened was uh, Jewish people would ally with Romans in order to bring accusations against Christians. And this was, again, the reality of the pressures that Christians were facing at the time. And And again, it's interesting the accusations would go something along the lines of, um, Christians are disrupting the peace of the status quo. Status quo is a, you know, a terminology referring to the way the Romans ruled these very diverse peoples, that the Christians were disrupting the ways that the Romans had set up. They would accuse um, Christians as not being a Jewish sect, which you, know, you could argue one way or the other, but the reason why they would make that accusation was the Jewish faith was considered an official religion, And therefore, okay, under the Roman rule. And so then to be not considered a Jewish sect put Christianity outside of the bounds of the way the Roman government was ruling and possibly get them into trouble. And then, of course, probably the, the easiest way to accuse was just to say that Christians were not paying homage to Caesar as Lord. And so again, you could see if the society was such and the possibilities of accusations were such that... For for Christians living at the time, economic prosperity, greater social standing was very much tied into engaging with the worship of these pagan idols and the Roman gods and and the emperor himself as God. Some of these successful accusations would come about because Again, many, many times Christians will be banned from the trade guilds that they were a part of or they were a part of until they were cast out. Or Hebrews 10.34 tells us that uh, people lost property as a, as a result of their faith, uh, or they could be in prison, as we know about. Or even in our text today, the encouragement is to be faithful unto death, to be faithful unto death, meaning implied capital punishment was on the line. For some Christians of the time. And we know, if we know any amount of church history, that there were many Christians martyred for their faith in that time in the life of the church. This was the context of the re- original readers of Revelation, the hearers of Revelation. So I just want to let you digest that for a moment because, okay, that's not quite our context there can be similarities, but that's not quite our context. And we'll talk a little bit about how do we apply the word "spoken" to that context, to those churches, to our lives. But let's take a little bit of uh, try to see the patterns in chapters two and three. Chapters two and three again are these seven messages to the seven churches, and we can say it: it's it's a microcosm of the message that is spoken throughout the book of Revelation. But it's key that we see that in every message, uh, roughly every message, there's these seven parts to each of the messages to these seven churches. First, there's this command to write to an angel of a church. And then there's a description of Christ, a self-description of Christ. And it's interesting that every self-description of Christ here is applicable to that particular church's situation. Then there's usually a commendation of that particular church's good works. And then there's usually a rebuke. I have this against you. You would have heard it read earlier. And then there's a call to repent or to persevere in the good that they were doing. And then a call to discern the truth. Again, this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Calling people to hear the word that the Lord has for them. And then lastly, each um, message to the seven churches ends with a promise to the conquerors the promise to the ones the christians who persevere in their faith in that context that they lived in and so really it's a promise of eternal life looked at from different perspectives uh, different facets of that eternal life Uh, and note in case you think of eternal life as an eternal worship service and either you love that or you hate that i don't know uh, but there's no promise of eternal life being an eternal worship service here. So you may be disappointed or rejoicing, I don't know. But here's the really interesting thing about the structure of these seven churches, the messages to the seven churches, is that the the seven churches fall into three categories, and it fits this this um, literary form, what we call chiasm, which I, I don't really want to describe a chiasm, but Let me just point out the things about this chiasm. The first and seven churches have something in in common in that they are in danger of losing their Christian identity, their identity as a Christian church, and they're being called to repent. Now, it's interesting just to think of this idea like maybe it's common language to you to be called to repent, or maybe it's not. But what does it mean to repent? Repent. When Or when do we get to the point as a church? I don't know how many churches you've been a part of in your life. When does does a church get to the point in the life of this church where it's possible of losing its identity as a Christian church? When do you reach that mark, right? And is it irreversible? It's not very easy to define the moment when a church has lost its identity as a Christian church. But let's start with this, since this is one of the themes of this These passages, when a church ceases to consider repenting, I would say it's lost its identity as a Christian church. There's a call to repentance that is a part of the life of a Christian and of a Christian church. So the first and seventh church, the bookends of these seven churches, are at risk of losing their identity as a Christian church. That's where they're at. The third through fifth churches, have degrees of faithfulness to God, yet also are compromising with pagan cultures. So churches number three, four, and five. Uh, if you have, oh, I forgot to say this earlier, if you have your Bible, it would be super helpful if you open it up, then you can just kind of see the big picture of these churches. So, so churches one and seven are the church, the Ephesus church, and the church, uh, the Laodicea church. Churches three, four, and five are Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. So those three churches have, again, degrees of faithfulness to God, but also ways in which they're compromising with pagan culture. And they're being exhorted to get rid of those elements of compromise in their life. Churches, uh, the second church and the sixth church in the list, are Myrna and Philadelphia. And these two churches are really the only churches in the list of sevens are really uh, only positive is spoken of them. They prove themselves faithful and loyal to Christ's name amidst the kinds of persecution that I described earlier from Jews and pagans. Uh, And even though they're described as poor with little power, they are at the same time encouraged to persevere, to endure with hope of inheritance for God's eternal life and God's promises. Now, just to point those things out right away, you would get the sense that only church two and six are essentially considered in good standing and the other five churches are not so much. And that shows that at that time, the, the health of the overall church was really not great. The condition of the health of the, the church of Christ was not great at that time. And that is emphasized by the placement of those churches. You know, the authors of scripture are very intentional in the way they write. So the bookends of these seven churches are the worst conditions. And then the ones in the middle, three, four, and five, are, yeah, okay, but, you know, some good, some bad, mixed in together. And churches two and six, almost forgotten about in the kind of arrangement of things, are the ones that are in, in the best health as churches. And the central statement in these uh, two chapters is chapter 223 where it says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mine and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. So that word is certainly for those seven churches, but also that word is for us. Are we willing to have an honest evaluation of where we are in our walk with God, and our faith in God, and our witness for God? Are we willing to ask those difficult questions? It's a sobering passage. Have we in any way sold our soul or sold out uh, Christ for the sake of economic prosperity, for the sake of societal acceptance? We would be fools to think that even, even though our circumstances are not like what they went through, that we do not face similar kinds of dynamics in our society today. I think as we look at and as we think about application to us as the church today in America, in Iowa City, Separation of church and state means that we don't have to face the kinds of pressure that these seven churches had to face, where essentially Rome is a religious state, because again, Rome says Caesar is Lord, and if you don't pay homage to Caesar, you're already at odds with the Roman government, and you're going to have to figure out a way to navigate that. Again, separation of church and state means... We can say, okay, this is my church life and this is my work life and I don't have to worry about that as much. We don't have to swear to, sacrifice to, suck up to any pagan God or emperor God in our everyday life the way that they did. And maybe they did it instead of really faith in Jesus or along with their faith in Jesus. Our temptation today is much more nuanced and subtle compared to the temptation they face at the time. And yet, I think the pressure we do face is to privatize our faith, say, "Okay, this is only for my private life. I will keep it for myself and not let let it have any public influence." Or we neuter our faith of its of its of its distinctives, of its power. Or, well, like believers in that time, we compromise with um, the culture that we live in. And perhaps we compromise to secularism or new age religions or we syncretize our faith with others or we make capitalism the chief thing in our life rather than our faith in God or it is conservatism or progressivism that becomes more defining of what we believe than faith in God himself and the truth described in scripture. When those views have greater influence over the way you live your life, Then our faith has been compromised. It was a scary passage for me to read because I don't have a lot of time to go into. But there are some serious warnings for false teachers, and it's easy for preachers to read about false teaching. Be like, I'm not one of those people. I'm faithful to the Word. But as I read about and studied about the false teachers of the time, that are that that God is saying, watch out for these false teachers. These were, again, nuanced, subtle false teachers, not like crazy people, which is, I think, how I tend to want to read things about false teachers. Oh, they're just crazy people, like really really out of bounds people. These are people who, teachers who probably were well-respected and yet, and genuine well-intentioned, believing what they said to be true, not like the, the crazy uh, prosperity gospel preacher who is maliciously out just to get money. I'm not, I'm not saying all, all preachers are like that, all prosperity preachers are like that, but there are those who know what they're doing and are doing it for their own sake. These false teachers are genuine, well-intentioned people teaching what they believe to be true, about God, teaching that, oh, yes, congregation, you do have freedom in Christ to be a part of that pagan worship service. You have freedom in Christ to be sexually moral in that way. Go for it. And so I have to ask myself, if I'm to be willing to have honest evaluation of myself as a Christian, where have I fallen short Are there ways in which I have not considered enough what Scripture has taught? And the call is the same for a Christian. Are Christians, congregations, unwittingly following teachings and preachers without wrestling with Scripture, wrestling with God themselves to see what is true? And the things they wrestled with, although the context was very different, the issues are not not so different from what we deal with. We do feel pressure to be prosperous and successful. And I think we face temptations, choices, where we are are asked, if we're willing to be honest, to choose integrity of witness and faith to God versus compromise. We live in a time where we are as a society As the church wrestling with what is the sexual ethic that's being taught? What is the truth of scripture about it? Who's right? Who's wrong? And we have to wrestle with those issues for ourselves. We have to read scripture for ourselves to say, if I believe a certain thing, whether it's conservative or progressive or whatever it may be, have you read the word for yourself? To figure out what you believe, what scripture teaches, so that you yourself can say, this is why I believe it. Not because my favorite blogger wrote a cool article about it, not because my favorite preacher preached a great sermon on it, because you yourself have wrestled with the truth of scripture. That's the call that we have upon us from this book. And yet... The compromise often does connect with, I think, things we covet in this world, things we idolize in this world that we say, this thing of this world is so important to me. I would rather have that. I think that has more power in my life than faith in God, than relationship with God. And so we're called to not compromise, but to witness to God And yet the witness that is being talked about here is probably not even what you're thinking in your head right now, because you've probably been around church enough that you think you're, when I say witness, you mean like go out into the street and go find someone and say, hey, I want to tell you the gospel. Not that necessarily, although it can involve that. The witness that was spoken of to these churches was not street preaching, not hey, share your testimony with your coworker. But again, it could involve that. But it was really about, are you living your Christian life distinctly according to the truth of God? Or are you willing to just fudge things and say, oh yeah, Christ is great, but yeah, go Caesar. What's Caesar in your life where it's easy for you to start fudging your faithfulness to God? Therefore, fudging your witness to God, your faithfulness to God. And the witness that probably is emphasized more than anything, at least in this text, and we don't face it, is a witness that leads to persecution, a witness that leads to suffering because of a willingness to stand true to the God that we believe in. That doesn't mean go look for suffering. It doesn't mean go look for persecution. I've been involved. I've talked to people in cults. And one of the things that distinguishes people in cults is anytime they're persecuted, it is proof to them that they are on the right path from God. Go find someone in a cult and you'll see this is true. To them, it is proof. That is not the way of a Christian because then you just go out and be jerks in the name of Jesus, and that's going to go terribly, right? But if we, are to, if we are to believe this world really is broken, and we believe living distinctly according to Christ's way is countercultural, then as Jesus says, we should expect that there are consequences to that sometimes. And I think we do live in a time where you can face those kinds of consequences, economic consequences, societal acceptance consequences. Oh, you're that weird Christian guy. Oh, that means you believe X, Y, Z. Ugh. Right? That's the kind of stuff we face often. But I think an even greater temptation because we live in America today because of separation of church and state is that our ability to be anonymous, anonymous Christians is maybe the greatest compromise. We don't have the same urgency that the early church did, right? Well, it's just different. They were like so young, so close to when Jesus came the first time. So fledgling, it's like being a church plant, right? Except you're like the only seven church plants in the world. You're like, if we die, Jesus' message is gonna die, right? We don't feel that pressure because we're like, okay, how many Christians in the world are there? How many churches are there in this city alone, this small city? We're like, ah, eh, what's the urgency, right? Someone else will do it. What's the big deal about witnessing It's a Christian nation, right? There's so many denominations. There's so many churches. Eh, I'll just keep being a good person. But we know this, and I'm saying the obvious. We just have to look at the church in Europe to know it doesn't take very long for the church to die. It just doesn't take very long. We're sending missionaries to Europe now because the church is so dead. It can't revitalize from within. To believe we do not need to witness is a compromise of the clear teaching of Christ and of our faith. This may be a forward question. Do your co-workers or neighbors know you are a Christian? Or you've just been waiting for 20 years for the right time for that truth to come out. I think I can say this. If you've been waiting 20 years for the right time, I think it's long enough. Do they know that your church community is an important part of your life? Do they know the reason for your faith? Do they know what you understand to be the gospel? Let's just start there. Let's just start there by... Willing to let people around us know we are Christians. And I know there's baggage that comes with that. People might assume certain things about that. They may not understand what that means. But that's the beginning. And it's not, honestly, that scary in the Midwest. There's enough general acceptance, niceness, that, you know, people are going to be polite to you at least about it. Let's start there and let's not, let's not be the evangelicals who only care to talk to people to convert them. Let's not be those witnesses. Let's also not be the people who are just like, I'm just gonna be nice and good and at some point, they'll ask me about my faith. They're never going to ask you about your faith because you're nice and good. Or maybe someone that's happened to someone. But let's just say, statistically, The odds are very bad. They're not going to bring up the conversation about it. Let's share the gospel and the reason for our faith because God calls us to love people. Let's be good to people because God calls us to love people. Let's talk to people because God calls us to love people. It's hard to love people if you don't talk to them. Let's just do it because God calls us to love people. As simple as that. You are a thoughtful, sensitive congregation. You are, generally speaking, evangelically minded, but not culturally evangelical. I think that's a good thing. Let's live that out. Let's be bold. If you love Christ, let someone know that. Somehow, see, God, what, see what God will do with that. I'm going to struggle with this sermon series, okay, because I should be ending. And I got like three pages, so I'm like figuring out how to do that. I'm going to give this main point. I'm going to ask you to chew on this. It'll make you read your Bible, so that's good. So maybe so far it sound like these messages that Jesus has given these seven churches just rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. It's not. That was one part out of seven in each of the messages to the seven churches. Every message began with a self-description of God. God saying, this is who I am. And that is so important because that is our power. That is our motivation for change, to see who God is. And God spoke a specific thing about himself to each of the specific churches. He knew what they needed to hear about himself. I was going to read the seven things, but I don't have time for that. So re- go read it for yourself. Every, almost every message included an expression of how God knew them as a church in, in the good sense. I commend this about you. We are, we are, let's just, we're a mixed church. There's good, there's bad. If Jesus were here, I'm sure he would commend some things about us and then he would probably, yes, he would. I have this against you. He would have something to say to us about honest evaluation. But God knows us. And that's important. He knows the good in us and he commends that in us. He knows our sins, he knows our struggles, he knows our strengths, he knows our successes. Every message to the seven churches ends with a promise of God. Oh, we need the promises of God as we live in this broken world. And again, these promises were specific promises spoken to each and particular church. And again, I wanted to read you all seven of those promises. But you'll have to read it for yourself. And I was just going to ask you, both in terms of the self-description of God and the promise of God, just to ask you to see what did the Lord speak to you in those self-descriptions and those promises? What encouraged you in that? What gave you motivation and power to live out your faith, to be faithful to your witness to God? I'll end with this word. Verse 20 in chapter 3 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. This verse probably, you know, has been primarily used in Christianity as a call to convert to Christianity, which is actually not entirely inappropriate, but as you've heard already, the context is Christ speaking to a church And specifically, the church was the Laodicea church, who God says, you are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. And he calls them, says, here, I'm right at the door. Hear my voice, open the door, and I will come in. It is an invitation to intimacy. Some scholars have said, it is like the groom knocking at the door of the bride to come into the bedroom. Or it's an invitation to feast together. It is an invitation to intimacy with God, to be identified with God as God identifies with us. And so therefore, it's an invitation to us to intimacy with God, to find our identity in God, And to feast with God and for those things to be the power for our life. And that's founded upon the gospel message, which I didn't even have time to really get into. But here's the beautiful thing, is that that last, near last verse in chapter 3 points us to this table that we are about to come to. This feast that we do partake in every week to remember what is this gospel that we so believe in? What is this gospel that sets us apart as a people? What is this gospel that gives us life and gives us power to set ourselves apart as distinctive from the rest of the world to help us to be faithful to God, to witness to God? Come hungry to receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.